Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Broxmeyer, who's the author of Electoral Capitalism, the Party System in New York's Gilded Age. This book was published in 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania Press, and it is a really detailed historical and political analysis of our understanding of how parties operate um, with some curveballs um, that I hope Jeff is going to talk to us about in terms of our understanding and interpretation of party activity as well as individuals within those parties. But first, I'd like to welcome Jeffrey Broxmeyer to the New Books in Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this really interesting project. Hi, Jeff. Hi, thank you so much for for having me. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. So, yeah, my project is, I guess, it's hard to pinpoint an exact origin for how ideas kind of come to crystallize in a brain. But I guess the most proximate is that I went to graduate school in New York. So I was living in New York and when I was thinking about the kind of project that I want to do, we all have these grandiose ideas about how to do research designs and you know various projects. But at the end of the day, we try to be a little bit practical. So I just uh, kind of saw that there was a case that I could use, maybe historical, because my, my project looks at New York um, in the Gilded Age, pretty much between the end of the Civil War and the turn of the, the century. And so... I just kind of saw that there was some really interesting material that I might be able to draw from in the archives kind of locally. Um, But I uh, kind of looking back on it, do have some um, kind of uh, kind of precursors, I guess, to the project that kind of arose when um, I was just, I actually went uh, to um, undergraduate in Wisconsin at University of Wisconsin, and go Badgers! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I was involved in local politics there, and there are a lot of kind of odd third-party politics in South Central Wisconsin, and I was kind of involved in that and some labor organizing, and those kind of brought I, I brought some of those questions with me that kind of are woven through the book um, when I'm thinking about kind of party politics and how parties organize themselves and um, some of the ways in which you can kind of understand how the party system might be set up by the way in which people kind of on the fringes are trying to critique those party organizations. And um, so I I ended up uh, kind of doing this political project, this, uh, this project on political parties, looking at them kind of historically um, and I took that through my dissertation. And then when I was hired on at uh, the University of Toledo in Northwest Ohio, I had the opportunity to, to finish the book. And um, so that's kind of where the project came from. And, and I can certainly see how coming from um, some of the political tradition in Wisconsin, obviously I am sitting here in Milwaukee, um, and, and the sort of various different political movements in Wisconsin over the last hundred years, as well as the political movements in New York over the last hundred years, might get one interested in how political parties work. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, <clears throat> Your book is a really interesting and and to some degree not necessarily as expected analysis of thinking about political parties, particularly, as you note, during this period of the Gilded Age and particularly in New York, um, that weaves together sort of our thinking about economics and our thinking about politics, but not necessarily in the usual ways. 
Um, And the title of your book, obviously, is Electoral Capitalism. So I was going to ask you if you could explain a little bit about what you mean by this term, electoral capitalism. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. One of my main themes that I'm trying to pick at here is how struggles over unequal wealth shape democracy in America. And so one of the things that I noticed in the historical perspective that when I kind of started digging was that political parties during the Gilded Age, especially right in in this period, um, for those of you who aren't kind of familiar with the historical kind of periodization um, again, between the kind of end of the civil war and the the turn of the the century, usually Um, I noticed the political parties during this period were really at kind of at the peak of their relevance, their society encompassing, at least insofar as um, the people who are enfranchised, right. Um, Which are just white men in in this period, um, largely um, in, in New York, at least. Um, And uh, so this is a moment when the inequality crisis is really at its worst um, by a lot of respects. Um, There's just a tremendous amount of social conflict in this period. And so my thinking was, well, what's the link here um, on the one hand between political parties and and on the other hand, the kind of inequality crisis? Um, And as I kind of started digging into the archives, uh, I noticed that there seemed to be this pattern that arose where there's this category of entrepreneurship. There's a lot of writing and thinking in political science, especially uh, about office holders as kind of political entrepreneurs, right? Um, but but a lot of that's in a kind of metaphorical sense where you have an entrepreneur, a kind of office-seeking entrepreneur who's trying to maybe run for higher office or maybe accrue political power um, or something like that. Um, but, I, but I began to see this kind of category of entrepreneurship where the capture of public office and the accumulation of private wealth were actually pretty mutually reinforcing. And so that's what I think of as electoral capitalism, kind of this formula where politics, electoral politics begets wealth. And we typically think of it, as you said, uh, of capitalism as this process where money begets greater wealth within an economic sphere of kind of employers and workers and, you know, commodities and markets and things like that. But in electoral capitalism, what I'm trying to suggest here is that in the kind of New York party system in the Gilded Age, at least, you could see that the, the main actors in the party system who are doing this, they're, they're really office holders who are trying to accumulate and invest. And the basic inputs here are whatever the levers of influence happen to be, um, right? The, the kind of offices that they can gain control over, whatever powers those offices might have, whatever can be kind of exchanged, like uh, votes or favors or, say, um, securing of charters or franchises or public subvention of of some kind, subsidies. Um, So the kind of idea that I'm trying to suggest here is that you can kind of see how office holders become kind of market makers in in their own right, but but these are largely kind of political um, markets organized through political parties. And the organization through the political parties, I mean, and you sort of talk about this in in the book a lot. You talk about the fact that we're familiar with people like Boss Tweed um, or we're familiar vaguely with what Tammany Hall might implicate. But you talk about like the layers of people involved that are not usually the ones who most of us can sort of say, hey, that guy was really instrumental in sort of the accumulation of wealth in this direction in 1892 in New York City. Um, And what you do in the book is go through some of these third and fourth and fifth range people um, and, and talk about how politics and sort of the pursuit of wealth were really intertwined. Can you talk a little bit more about that? 
Sure. Yeah. I, I try to approach the electoral capitalism kind of idea from two vantage points. So one is the kind of top down uh, of the part of the party system. And the other is the kind of bottom up, but in these really elaborate forms of business ventures that ambitious entrepreneurs form and weave through party factions. Um, the kind of most clear examples in the book are Tammany Hall in the Democratic Party and then stalwart Republicans in um, the Republican Party, the, the quote-unquote stalwart faction. And these are the factions that were kind of most influential and really dominant in the 1860s, 1870s, and 1880s. Um, and one of the things that you can see is if you just look kind of right below the top layer of the kind of political uh, party, then you can really see who's running these organizations that are doing so much politics. Like, for instance, Tammany Hall had an entire financial sector, a whole set of banks, uh, and they weren't run by Boss Tweed. As you mentioned, Tweed is one of these singular figures of Tammany Hall. Um, who is a bit infamous and, and at least somewhat well-known among um, scholars and, and um, a lot of people uh, who maybe just went through school and learned about corruption in New York. Um, but if you look right below these, these kind of figures that are oftentimes um, mentioned in books, like Tweed on the Democratic side or Roscoe Conkling, who kind of organized the stalwart faction on the Republican side, look right below them and you can see all these um, institutions that have been created um, to organize this kind of activity, this kind of electoral capitalism. So, you know, we're talking about like banks and lottery companies and, you know, liquor distilleries and um, all sorts of real estate investments and um, brokerage firms and law firms and they're just doing a substantial amount of party organizing that I think is kind of missed, that, that's kind of been missed um, when looking at political parties, because a lot of these figures are really obscure. Um, they're not the people who attracted the most attention. And then um, I also try and take a look at electoral capitalism from the bottom up, mostly through a focus on the spoil system by not so much looking at the people who were distributing the spoils so much, which has gotten some attention. And that's typically what we think of when we think of the spoil system. Um, but kind of looking at the, the bottom up of the people who were trying to get these lower offices that were so crucial to the organization of the political parties, especially in the Gilded Age, and the way in which that kind of internal market that kind of the way in which offices were commodified and allocated within the political parties uh, just these these figures are just these people are completely obscure right like the people who were the doormen and the messengers and the street sweepers and the rod men and the night watchmen these these positions were just incredibly important for the the functioning of political parties uh, which were decentralized in the 19th century um, politics was really local, not only local, but really parochial in terms of what kind of factions could influence sending um, petty office seekers to these great offices, which would be important for financing the political party through um, kind of kicking back salaries and things like that. So I try to kind of look at those people too and see what, is, what exactly is it that they were trying to get out of, out of this and and one of one of the things that you sort of do in the book is you sort of sh shift our our framing a little bit in thinking about how the the parties themselves were a part of as opposed to in charge of um this kind of wealth accumulation um that we see going on in the the post civil war rise of industrialization period that we're talking about, particularly in New York, where there is a lot of wealth um, because of what is in New York at this time. Um, and so can you sort of think about or talk about with me how the parties were 
you know, part of this, this move towards, you know, accumulating a lot of money for a lot of people. Sure. Yeah. I, I think, um, one of the way, one of the ways that might be useful to think about it is, is that, um, there are all of these pressures on these ambitious office seekers to find ways to organize and finance their political parties. This is the environment, the electoral environment in the period is really highly competitive, right? So you have the party leaders who are trying to win elections and they're trying to figure out how to do that um, and move people around and move resources around. And one of the ways in which they do that is through the spoil system. And for those who aren't that familiar, that's just generally the way in which the political culture of the political parties starting really in the 1830s um, has to do with capturing office so that you can distribute appointments, lower office appointments to party loyalists who are then going to have some kind of work um, that they can, you know, you're in the, you're a post, you're in the, you work in the post office, or maybe you work uh, on the, uh, on the docks of New York as part of, you know, as part of the port of New York. And, and these are really essential kind of government functions. But ultimately, the importance to the political party is that the person is doing political work mostly year round, and they're kicking back kind of a portion of their salary to the political party so that the party can pay for all these really extensive expenses, like, say, um, mobilizing the speaker circuit in the election when elections come around or subsidizing party newspapers or printing ballots or, you know, um, treating voters, that is to say, giving them kind of small bills or shots of whiskey on election day in order to kind of get them to the polls and stuff. Um, And one of the things that I found was, so this is typically how we think of the spoil system. And and there's a, a lot of really interesting stuff about that kind of classic view of the spoil system. But I, in the book, I try and show that, that that's really the starting point for how we should think about the spoil system rather than, than the end point, especially in the Gilded Age, when you have these kind of spoilsmen who are situated in public administration, and then they turn around and they have all these incentives to get more out of the office than they put in, because it can be actually quite expensive to secure any kind of these posts. Um, through the spoil system, you have to work through party brokers who will probably ask you to front some money and things like that. Um, and so the capture of, say, the Port of New York, um, w- which was at the peak of the spoil system in the 19th century, which had about 1,500 jobs, most of which were really pretty significantly high in terms of the salaries for the day, um, and the way in which those kind of spoilsmen would, would mobilize for the party and kick back for the party. Um, that's the starting point for organizing these other party businesses. That's not the end point. So I point out that when the stalwart Republicans who were it, the kind of dominant force in um, New York politics in the late 1860s and throughout the 1870s into the 18, early 1880s, they capture the port first. But then they turn around and use those resources to establish all sorts of other really significant party businesses. For example, the uh, one of the most important financial brokerage firms in the country that, that comes out of this period is a firm called Morton Bliss & Company. And that's a financial brokerage firm that is kind of living off or, or it's born from the patronage they can get from the grant administration to service the national debt, which is huge that comes out of the Civil War. Um, But then, so it it creates this really substantial financial brokerage firm, which is networked throughout the party. And so it's servicing all of these Republican office holders um, with financial services and kind of negotiating these party factions through the kinds of loans it can give out, uh, stock tips, managing the portfolios, the financial portfolios of all of these major party leaders. Um, and so um, 
there, there just hasn't been a lot of attention to the way in which these companies that are basically built through political patronage end up becoming really significant for um, the, the party in, in national politics too. And, and you talk about this as a way of sort of the fusion of property and office holding, um, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about what's going on here, because we often think about the achievement of the office itself, elected president or elected governor or elected mayor as the as the the achievement that a, an individual is pursuing. And this is also the way that, you know, the Federalists talk about this in the Federalist Papers. But your book is really kind of deconstructing that and suggesting that the the achievement of the office is is only a small part of, you know, essentially the broader economic and political scheme that are all sort of woven together. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it because, I, I mean, it's, it's, of course, most present in our minds when we're thinking about, you know, what someone is trying to get out of an office is they, they want to, you know, they have ambitions for honors. They have ambitions to enact their policy commitments. Um, they'd like perhaps greater influence within their political party or, or something like that. Right. Um, but then there are all these other aspects to how office holders have kind of approached office seeking and political parties historically, which are much more layered, I think, and complex in a lot of different ways. Um, when, you know, in, in the first few generations of political leaders in the country, um, we're, we're really talking about um, the quote unquote gentleman class, right? The, the wealthiest people in the country, they have a tremendous amount of resources already. Um, but then when you move into the 19th century, and especially by the mid 19th century, you're talking about people who, in the advent of mass parties, are kind of working their way up the, the party system from the bottom, and they don't have any kind of real independent source of wealth. And a lot of what they want out of their political careers is upward social mobility. And so one of the ways in which parties kind of coordinate collective action in this period is by kind of organizing the ambitions of these office seekers for something that they really want, and that's capital. They want <laughs> they want these resources in order to build um, wealth, uh, and they see this as something that is of a piece with their political career, rather than necessarily contrasted with it. Um, and I should say that some th there's really a lot of explicit talk about this, especially among the stalwart republic. There, there's a lot of kind of um, thinking of, so, okay, you know, Tammany Hall in New York. The, these folks were, you know, folks who talked really quite explicitly about, you know, how they're going to use politics to get rich, right? There, there's uh, a great series of interviews by George Washington Plunkett on that, who was a, one of these Tammany leaders. Um, but if you look at the other side of the, the aisle, the Republicans, the stalwart Republicans in this period, they have a whole theory of how they think about the political party as basically a company. And the way that the company is organized is that basically those who contribute most to the venture are going to reap the most reward. The spoils are basically distributed as dividends. Um, I found this really fascinating uh, piece of correspondence from one of the major party leaders in New York in this period, a guy named Thomas Platt, who I'm sure all but forgotten, you know, by everyone today. But at the time, he was really a significant political actor. And he writes to his colleague, he would not even consider holding an office unless he could get more out of it than he invested. And I think that that's such a great encapsulation of that kind of logic of accumulation where um, the party leaders are trying to kind of tap into the American state in various ways to create the surpl surplus that they can uh, share widely. 
And and you talk about this, you use this term party noir, um, which I think is really an interesting term in terms of how this kind of behavior is operating in the, the development of American political parties. Um, can you explain to listeners what you mean by this idea of party noir? Sure. Yeah. I uh, tried to think about this book as related to debates. It's, it's really a lot of the um, empirical material is historical, but I do try to position it into some larger debates about political parties. One is a debate over party formation, you know, how do parties form? Um, but this other one is how to think about political parties just more generally. And there's a lot of celebration of political parties and what they do in the scholarship on, on, on especially American parties, right? Um, you know, parties have all of these really crucial functions for making democracy work. They organize ambitions. They mobilize society, they translate these, you know, needs of voters into policies that are then, you know, where pe- you can hold people accountable for, for some kind of uh, program. Um, there's a mechanism for that through collective action through political parties, right? Um, so there's a lot of celebration of political parties, especially when they can mobilize society, um, pretty substantially, right? And then when they can't, like say, for instance, when people don't show up to vote on election day, you know, if you have like 40% voter turnout, then, you know, there's all sorts of discussion about a crisis of democracy because the political parties aren't necessarily functioning in the way that we might think they would, they should. Um, So there, there is a kind of celebration of political parties. And I think that that's right. That's good. Um, in a lot of respects, but it also kind of misses this aspect that I think is present in this study. And and that is that the political parties really have a kind of dark side to them. There's a little bit of a uh, overlooking, I think, of how political parties can exacerbate um, violence, repression, um, particularly say, if you, if you look in the, um, you know, post reconstruction period in American political development, um, and other periods, right. There's a, there's a way in which political parties in order to function have to have silences over some of the great issues of the day. Um, you know, the whole second party system was organized around basically not talking about slavery. Right. right? Um, and this, I think fits th- this, book fits a bit into that kind of tradition of looking at the dark underbelly, the kind of seedy underbelly of the political parties, because the strong party system in this period produced huge fortunes for party leaders. I mean, one of the things that I definitely want to kind of emphasize here is some of the earliest millionaires in the United States were party leaders, right? And they did not have those fortunes before they entered into politics, like say the first generation, right? Of like the plantation owners and the the merchants and things like that. Um, And so in thinking about the kind of dark underbelly, some of the pathological aspects of political parties, I I especially want to point out that um, so much of the politics of inequality, of kind of the way in which uneven power relations within political parties plays out. Um, All of that's really hidden from view. And it just takes a tremendous amount of effort to try and uncover, uncover some of that hidden political behavior, because obviously none of these political figures want it to come out that they're, you know, running banks (laughs) that are basically servicing themselves uh, as a way to finance their fortunes and their parties, and they're basically doing it through political patronage and, and, and stuff of the, of this kind of nature. So would you say that in, in terms of your analysis and the research that you've been doing, that the aim is not necessarily per se political power, but 
wealth as the goal in among party activists during this period of time? Yeah, I, I think that so that's that's one of the things that it can kind of be difficult to disentangle because these are cases where you see office holders or office seekers so clearly trying to build political power through political wealth and and, and vice versa um, that sometimes there's a pretty stark divergence where, where that happens, where um, you basically end up with everything kind of crashing down and, and the dust kind of settles and you, you see that there's actually some learning that takes place where the, the first set of cases that I, I talk about in Tammany Hall are just completely rapacious and they're not, they're, they're very risk prone and they're not really carefully kind of thinking through um, some of the consequences of how they're setting up their, their organization. And so it, it all kind of crashes in this bank run um, and everyone loses their fortune. I mean, some of the, some of the people who had become some of the wealthiest people in New York in just a matter of a few years lose everything and, um, and they're jailed. And the people who kind of come after that say, whoa, you know, got to find a way to make this work where some of the, some of this behavior is kind of tempered. Um, and the party isn't going to be basically driven from office and potentially destroyed um, by some of the consequences of the risky behavior. And so you see that the political machine that kind of follows the fall of Tammany Hall after the Tweed Ring, the Tweed Ring is in power basically from the late 1860s into the early 1870s. And then the stalwart Republicans who organize their party businesses, their kind of scope of party businesses after that, try and find some way to kind of balance the the desires of its middling and lower office holders for personal wealth um, with the needs for party unity uh, with very much the understanding that this kind you know, that's ripe for division, internal division and, and all sorts of kind of internal factionalism that could have adverse effects on electoral victory, basically. Um, so, I would say that there are certainly some people who are much more rapacious than others in terms of prioritizing their um, their personal wealth. Um, but the political machines that end up persisting over the long term are the ones that find some way to kind of balance this. And And so in balancing sort of the desire or the pursuit of political power and the pursuit of of wealth, um, you also, you, you've sort of run down half of the, the case studies in the book, but you get to the second half of the book, which is about partisan poor relief and, and the role of sort of anti-monopoly as a policy. Can you talk a little bit about the second half of the book as well? So the, the first half, as you said, kind of takes a top-down look at, you know, these, these banks and brokerage firms. Um, and um, I talk about an express company, the U.S. express company, and um, real estate speculation among the kind of top and middling party leaders. And then in the second half of the book, what I try to do is take this bottom-up look and see, okay, well, how is it that the spoil, what did the spoil system look like for people at the bottom, or maybe even people who were kind of entirely excluded from this on the kind of fringes of the party system and the people who had criticisms of how electoral capitalism worked. And one of the things that I found was that there's just an incredibly rich amount of um, description out there about what the kind of everyday woes of the kind of the petty spoilsman was like um, in the correspondence of these people who are trying to seek some kind of public office through the party system. And so if you take a look at this vast group of people who are basically clamoring for some kind of appointment to these middling or lower positions 
in public administration, like, you know, making the Port of New York run or, you know, the post office or um, any of these, you know, working in the Treasury Department in, you know, as a clerk or something like that. Um, There's this theme that just kept coming up in this correspondence. Um, And it's that people were really desperate for these positions as a way to help them get by. Uh, In the the language of the day, what they were looking for was what they would call, quote unquote, a situation. (laughs) And uh, what they meant by that, or what it meant in, in context, was that they were looking for some kind of way to um, make it past the winter. Maybe they had just gone into bankruptcy or there had been a downturn in the economy more generally. Maybe they were um, older. They were kind of of old age or they had had an entire lifetime of hard labor and they were looking for some kind of situation that was going to, and by that they meant a job, that was going to kind of put them into quote unquote light work, like easier work, or maybe if they had a disability or if there was a health crisis in the family, um, or if they had numerous dependents, or if they had personal expenses or other kinds of extreme hardship, you just see that theme overwhelm the uh, um, letters where people are appealing for positions through the spoil system. And, And I think it shows something of a lack of understanding that we have about how the spoil system worked, which was really one of the most important kind of extra constitutional ways in which the political system worked, where you have people basically getting these jobs in public administration as a way to, through service to their party, as a way to kind of make the government run um, and parties electorally competitive. But we have this idea that, okay, we know that in the 1830s, Civil serv- or sorry, um, the spoil system was begun as a kind of reform in the kind of early Jacksonian period where the allies of Jackson argued that rotation in office was a reform. It was going to dislodge the kind of privileged gentleman class. And then we have this sense at the end of the century that civil service reformers want to bring in the merit system. They want to kick out the spoils folks that are basically just running public administration in, in the service of the political parties being electorally competitive. But in between, I think that the, the meaning of what office-seeking was for people at the bottom of the society and at the bottom of the party system um, was really something quite different than is often characterized in the scholarship. You know, spoilsmen are kind of really maligned, I have to say. You know, they're, they're portrayed as people who are kind of venal, they're, they're vulgar, they're, they're looking for office, they just want to get something out of it for themselves. Um, but the, uh, the correspondence that you can read um, in the archives about you know, people looking for these positions, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, it, it really completely changed my view of what the spoil system meant for people who were trying to work it in order to just make ends meet. And, and that's, again, you know, you sort of are, are overlaying into our understanding of, of politics or the political dynamics of, say, something like the spoil system, the real true economic um, demands of the time. Uh, and in a certain sense, in the way that you discuss the spoil system and people pleading for a position, it's kind of also the, the quote, white collar job that you know, you can't, there aren't a lot of other options um, at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, I think the one way to look at it is it can be confusing, I think, because these kinds of jobs were really tenuous. Um, Your employment in the lower kind of mid to lower spoil system, right? The people who were basically competing for jobs in this, these internal party markets um, for, for a gig. And then once they get the gig, they're trying to get a better one somewhere else with a little bit higher salary, maybe a little bit more secure. Um, th- these are really kind of tenuous 
employment situations. Um, if your faction, you know, loses an election, you're basically thrown out of office. Um, or if there's a kind of party broker that you're working through that maybe loses some influence for whatever reason, um, then that could have really severe repercussions for all the people who they appointed below them um, at, in the, that kind of patron-client relation. Um, but you have to think of it in relation to the larger society at the time where employment was extremely precar- precarious. There were very severe downturns in the, 17, in the 1870s and in the 1890s. Um, there were all sorts of difficulties of securing long-term work anyways. Um, this is a period of industrialization. It's a period of proletarianization. So wage laborers um, are, especially if you don't have a lot of skills, are not in a good position to bargain with employers just generally. Um, and, and there's just a lot of unemployment, um, especially in New York as the population is growing. Um, one of the uh, historians, Mike Wallace, in a kind of uh, classic uh, description of the city uh, and how the city changes after the 1850s in New York City is that, you know, it's, it's like cities being built on top of cities within the same space. Um, and there's just a huge amount of people who are competing for employment. And I think the best way to think of it in the spoil system is that there's this kind of reserve army that is sometimes referred to as the office holding crowd. And they're always, you know, waiting to kind of uh, step into your position if you kind of lose influence or maybe step out. So there's actually a tremendous amount of competition here, although the jobs are kind of short term and um, a lot of these wouldn't necessarily be desirable jobs for, you know, maybe many of the listeners here. Uh, Well, of course, and they were also 100 years ago. Yeah. But I mean, in, in, the, in the context. Yeah. Um, and and you, you also are writing a book that is very specifically thinking about New York and the parties in New York. Um, but you're doing this still as a political scientist and sort of possibly providing us with some extrapolations from your conclusions. Can, can you to talk a little bit about, you know, what you see from this particular case study of this particular time and what we can understand about our current political dynamics? Well, one of the limits of the book for sure is that I'm just looking at one party system, one state, and, and it, you know, also it's the state's impact on national politics too, but it's still, you know, confined within the state party system. Um, within this period from the 1860s to the, the turn of the century. But I think in the way that the demonstrative method of the book tries to kind of lift up the hood of the car, so to speak, to see how pieces are moving there, um, you can see patterns of historical behavior that, although within their particular historical context, you you can make some systematic claims about them, I think, right? For instance, one of the reasons why electoral capitalism becomes so generalized within the party system in the period that I'm talking about is because it offers all these tools to coordinate collective action that are really useful, that, that these party leaders find are really useful. Um, and so, you know, that that's an insight that I think might be worth developing that might that might have some legs to say compare with other moments um, or maybe even develop further for instance um, there is i think some comparison to be made with the current period where anyone who's kind of been following the news has probably seen that politicians are holding office and making money at the same time, right? Um, For example, you know, most clearly um, when Donald Trump was elected, he set up a 
hotel right down the street from the White House, right? And it was very well kind of um, uh, used and employed by all sorts of political actors throughout the presidency, right? And President Trump had a whole set of businesses that uh, and business relationships that he basically kind of folded into his party politics. And so while I wouldn't say that this book can tell us everything about, you know, the current moment, um, the Gilded Age was a period when party leaders were running businesses in order to win elections. And so there's, I think, a lot of potential for thinking through those kinds of problems by looking back at American history. And, you know, and we do also see the um, sort of wealthy, not just Donald Trump, but people like Ross Perot or Steve Forbes, um, who have run for office from their positions of being a leader of a giant company, um, or even somebody like Dick Cheney, who was at Halliburton for 10 years before he was vice president. And there are these kinds of, you know, sort of movement between um, great wealth and political office in our more contemporary situations. Yeah, absolutely. Especially since it's so easy to use money in all sorts of different ways today. Um, Ways in which, of course, couldn't be conceived back in, say, the 1880s. Um, But I will say that some of this stuff is is, definitely... uh, raised my eyebrows when I go and read the paper, for instance, and, and find that Paul Manafort, who um, was a party guy, you know, um, in the 80s and 90s, and then he somehow kind of conjures that into a private equity firm, uh, Pericles, um, which also collapses uh, um, in, a, in a way very reminiscent of the kind of Tammany Banks um, that I describe in, in chapter one. Um, there's some way that I think the uh, attempt to kind of an- analyze this systematically might uh, have us thinking about how office seeking can be a kind of entrepreneurship that has to do with people trying to not only become powerful, but also very wealthy. Yeah. So, Jeff, what are you working on now that you finished this book? <laughs> well... Um, raising my kids, <laughs> which is full-time these days. <laughs> yeah, more than a full-time job. I'm now uh, also a preschool teacher, um, which has uh, been exciting. I'm trying to think about what my next project is, and I want to be just kind of open to what what that might be organically. One of the things that I was trying to think about is whether I might be able to do a kind of American political development revisiting of the spoil system across the 19th century. Uh, a lot of that literature on how the spoil system worked is really old, um, in some cases 50, 60 years old, and mostly in history, uh, in history, to, you know, historiography. Um, and so I was just trying to think about how the spoil system might have radically developed over time um, in ways that we haven't fully thought about. That, that's one idea that I had for a project. Um, but one of the, there, there were all sorts of pieces to this book that didn't get finished because I had two kids in between and there were a bunch of pieces of the project that kind of got chopped off because I just didn't have time to help raise the kids and have, you know, an extra few chapters in the book. So one, one of the things that I'm working on right now is just um, trying to take a look at how some of the office seekers in the Gilded Age period in New York that basically lost out in factional struggles within the state end up getting these really cushy appointments into Western territories. Uh, So like out out West where, you know, in New Mexico and Arizona and Colorado, um, when these were not yet states, the... um, national officials would, would basically just place, you know, the governor and the um, lieutenant governor and, you know, the chief justice and all the courts. They, these are all just basically patronage appointments. And so there's definitely some kind of connection between the major kind of influential state parties and the way in which they were able to work the kind of outers, outer lying areas of the spoil system on the periphery of the country. 
uh, and then try and use those as business opportunities to, uh, as in many cases in this book, get rich quick. So the the sort of settling of the West um, and structuring politics into the West is part of the extended spoil system. Yeah, I think perhaps to a degree that um, hasn't been appreciated um, insofar as there were a lot of ways to extract wealth out of the West. And so I look forward to reading that as well as possibly your political science analysis of the spoil system. And I hope you'll join me when those books come out. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about the book and for everything you do to talk with authors about new books in in the field. It's just been such a lifeline for me as someone who commutes a great distance. I commute from Metro Detroit to Toledo and I just always put on uh, New Books Network and I get all sorts of um, you know, caught up with with the field that I otherwise wouldn't have had time for. So I just I really appreciate for you for the service that that you've done. Oh, thank you for that. That's really appreciated, and I'm glad that that's an interesting um, sort of conversation as you drive across uh, the sort of middle upper Midwest. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you, Jeffrey Broxmeyer, for joining me today to talk about electoral capitalism, the party system in New York's Gilded Age published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. I assume one can pick up this book at the University of Pennsylvania Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online option that you would like to give a shout out to? Um, I don't really have a brick and mortar store so much. Um, but one thing that I might suggest is you can go to, I think it's um, bookshop.org. Bookshop.org is a great place to pick up copies, particularly of academic books. Yeah. Yeah. So I would just encourage people maybe to to use bookshop.org if they were interested. Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, Jeffrey. Thank you. Thank you.